you've got a Bible, you can take it and, and go ahead and turn to uh, Psalm 119. We're going to get there in just, just a moment. But I hope everybody's having a good weekend. We're in the midst of this series called Masterpiece that we started last week. And we're talking about God turning us into a masterpiece. And uh, we, if you were here last week, um, we talked about a particular statue. Remember who the, what the statue was we talked about? Anybody remember? David, right? We got a picture of it there. We talked about this, this statue of David, right? Who was the, uh, the sculptor of that statue? Michelangelo, right? A couple of you knew that. Good. Here's the thing. Michelangelo is known. He's very famous for this particular statue. Actually, um, at the park last week, talked to a couple of people that have been uh, to see this statue. And they said one of the things that's uh, breathtaking about it, you don't realize, it is 18 feet tall. So it is huge. And he says it's just a breathtaking moment. But this is not Michelangelo's most famous or most um, well-known work. Does anybody know what his most well-known work is? The Sistine Chapel, right? And so he did these paintings of the Sistine Chapel. That's this, this amazing um, way that he painted all of these scenes. It took him four years. And I, I remember this. I didn't look it up this week. But I, I remember like many of those years he was spent lying on his back. Do you remember? He, like, he built scaffolding and he's painting on his back. And it's this amazing thing that happened all over. And for hundreds of years... Um, people were amazed at the work that he did. And, and one of the things that happened is people would go in and see it. And um, Michelangelo finished this in the early 1500s. And so for 400 years, there was no way really to light that area except through, what did they use for light back then? Candles, right? What do you use when the lights go out, right? Candles. And so they would burn candles and people would come in at night and they would see it and they would marvel at it. Even during the day, they would burn candles, and because it was a religious place, lots of candles were used a lot. And what happened is, over time, 400 years of candle burning, that the smoke and the soot and everything just kind of uh, got up into the painting and covered over some of it. And art historians and critics would look at this painting, and they thought that Michelangelo was a genius of artistic composition. The way that he placed figures, and you know the most famous part of this whole thing, if you remember, is that place where Adam is reaching up to God, and he's got his finger, and God is reaching down almost as if he's been waiting for Adam to reach. And there's this, this seminal moment of composition that's just really cool. But the people that saw this painting said that Michelangelo, although he was really good with composition, art critics said he wasn't very good with color. Because this is kind of drab and... Bleary and blah. That's an art critic official term is blah, right? And so in the 1980s, they, because of all the smoke in 400 years and they'd gone to lighting that wasn't candles, they decided to, to just get all that stuff off and wipe it away and restore it to it, what it was originally supposed to be. And when they restored it, they found something they had no idea was there. This. I don't know if you can tell this or not. This is the exact same thing you saw just a minute ago. It's just that when it was restored, the color and the vibrancy came out. And its original state is one of unbelievable color and vibrancy. Now, we started this series last week called Masterpiece. And this is kind of... The, the, the 
what we're going to go with for the next few weeks is that God's in the process of restoring us to the original state that he had in mind for us. And that a lot of us are living a life where we are in the midst of that transformation, but we look more drab and dreary and blah than the vibrant relationship God intends for us and the lives he intends for us to live. And the truth is, many of us have just settled for dingy when God wants bright. Uh, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago in our... um, uh, Wednesday night Bible study, I, I shared this illustration about um, Eli. Uh, Eli, obviously my oldest, Eli's 12, almost 13. You look at him now and five foot eight, grown an inch in the last month, just, you know, growing into a young man. And uh, Eli was our first. And I don't know if you are aware of this. Some of you may not be aware of this. You treat your first differently than you treat the ones that come after. Right? Not, not like... Not like favoritism or anything. You just are a little more, um, what's the word I want to use? Um, crazy, cautious about your first compared to your other ones. And one of the things that we were, we were, you know, sticklers for with Eli is that he never drank juice without it being watered down. Any other parents that water down your kids' juice? A few of us, alright? Are you here today? Y'all just, alright? few of you. And so we'd water down every time we got Eli juice. It'd be half apple juice, orange juice, whatever, half water. Okay? Because you don't want the kid to get addicted to juice, obviously, right? Rots their teeth, all that stuff. And so that's what we did. I mean, these days, we, you know, we have four. With the first one, you take time to do all that. We have four now. We're just lucky if the juice makes it in the cup, all right? And so we would water it down. And so uh, I remember we, we sent him off to preschool and we went to meet with his preschool teacher. He's three years old. And we went to meet with his preschool teacher. And so for three years, we'd water down his juice every time. And so we're talking to her and she's always oh, a he's a joy to be around. You know, anybody else experience this as parents like your kids are different people at school. Like your parents are like, he's a joy. He never like we're not talking about the same kid here. What are you talking about? And she's like, you know, joy. We love having him around. He's a great kid. She goes, but there's one thing he he can't get enough of the juice. I was like, he can't get enough of the juice. She's like, he wants like five or six cups of juice. And I realized at that moment, Eli is like, my parents have been holding out on me. This is the good stuff, like real juice. They didn't water down everybody's juice. And so he wanted it all the time. Well, a lot of us have been living on watered down faith in Christ. And Christ is wanting us to have the real stuff, the good stuff, the non-watered down juice. And we have just been focused on, well, I'm okay where I am. So over the next few weeks, here's what we're going to do. For the next five sermons, we're going to look at the ways that God uses to restore us from that drab painting to the colorful life. Now imagine to this. Imagine you lived a life that was full of what God intended for it to be full of. Truth and grace and mercy. You didn't have regrets about yesterday or last year or your teenage years. You didn't worry about the guilt that comes along with decisions that you've made because Christ has set you free from that. 
Now, when good things happened in your life, you just boldly gave praise and honor to God. And when bad things happened, you boldly gave praise and honor to God because he works all things together for the good for those who know him and love him and follow his way. And you were just confident in who he is. When career changes happen, you're just confident God's going to take care of that. When a friend of yours deserts you, you're just confident that everything's going to be okay because you trust in the Lord. And your life is just a beacon of the love of Christ. We're going to talk over the next few weeks. How does God chip away and get us to that place? Remember, this is our scripture verse that we're kind of using for the whole series. It comes from Ephesians chapter two, and it just says that we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. And the idea here is that we are his work of art. We are the thing that he displays to the world of his grace and his mercy and his love, that we are the turning us into a work of art that is beautiful and bright and good. And the first step that has to happen in order for us to become who God intends for us to be, in order for God's sanctification, his work of turning us into who we ought to be, happens is we must start in a place that is perhaps the most important place in your entire thought life, your mind. Look what uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? Paul says here that if we want to see this transformation, if we want to see this metamorphosis, if we want to see this complete change in who we are, then we have to understand that we're going to have our mind renewed, that something's going to change in the way we think, that we're going to be different in the way we see and approach the world because of the transformation that has happened. And that renewing our mind is what does that in our lives. I saw an interesting thing this week. It was on uh, one of our members, Phil Hartman's Facebook page. He he put um, how the world has changed about the way that we get information and the way that our information changes who we are. And so it was a, really a graph of where people get their news. Now, I'm old enough, barely, to remember a day when everybody got their news at the same place. The morning paper and the nightly news. And that was it. You didn't have all these other things. But today you can get it from all kinds of places. And here's what was interesting about it. And we won't go into all the details. But the people that considered themselves conservative got almost all their news from, you want to guess where they got it? Conservative places. Drudge Report, Breitbart, Fox News. People who considered themselves moderate or liberal got almost all their news from guess where? Moderate or liberal places, Right? MSNBC and the Daily Kos and Salon and Huffington Post. And there was this gamut of all the kind of places in between. But what was interesting is the people that were conservative got most all their news from conservative places. And as a result, they became more and more conservative. And the people who were moderate or liberal got almost all of their news from moderate or liberal places. and They became more and more liberal. And the only time they ever intersected was when on Facebook they were yelling at each other about something. It's kind of a chicken and the egg kind of thing. Like, which came first? Did you become conservative? And so you follow conservative news or did conservative news make you conservative? Well, the point that it made to me as I was looking at it is we are and become what we think and what we expose ourselves to. And that's not new with me. That's Paul. We're transformed 
by the renewing of our mind. Psalm 119 is kind of an interesting place to start. Um, Psalm 119, we're going to look at it in just a minute because it, it's a love poem. Anybody here ever write poetry? Not like currently, like in your life you ever written poetry. How many of you have ever, like even for an assignment in school? Some of you had deficient educations. All right, I don't know if you know this or not. I went this week, by the way, to a poetry reading at a school. Unbelievable. Third grade poetry reading. All right. And so but I discovered I don't, I don't know if y'all y'all knew this, but there was a major discovery in the history of poetry this week. I'm holding in my hand something that has not been read publicly in almost 26 years. It's a wealth of information within it. It's known as Lyle Larson's eighth grade writing journal. All right. I discovered it this week. And I just want you to give you a sense of, of who I was in eighth grade, all right? And so some of you are eighth graders out there. This is my poetry. You're going to discover two things about me. I'm going to read this for you. Um, two things you will discover about me. One is I love Dyersburg Summers. That's not the name of a person. That's I grew up in Dyersburg, and I love the Summers. And secondly, you're going to learn I'm a rule follower, and so it has to rhyme. None of this free flow, free verse stuff, right? It has to rhyme. So here we go. Are y'all, I don't know that y'all are ready for this. This is life-altering stuff you're about to hear, all right? You ready? Dyersburg summers are special to me. There's lots to do and much to see. The end of school always begins the season children hope will never end. Children running and playing in the sun, it reminds us all of what's really fun. Fourth of July is hard to beat, but Saturday in the park tries to compete. I'll explain that later. Some people take jobs to earn some pay while others just stay at home and sleep all day. The days are hot and can cause a sweat. Some people take a swim and get all wet. It's got to rhyme. Baseball has always been my favorite sport, but if you don't like baseball, there's always the tennis court. Dyersburg summers are always hot, but you can have fun even if you're just a tot. (laughs) That last line is particularly uh, enlightening. And here's the thing, all right? How many many of you, your lives have been changed right now? There you go. It's good to know. (laughs) It's because you, like, I ain't listening to him anymore. That was horrible. Here's the thing. We, people try to write poetry and we know what it's supposed to sound like and it doesn't quite fit, right? And poetry is the language of emotion. Like Shakespeare's love poems, the sonnets, or, or, um, we've read Emily Dickinson, we've read Robert Frost. In school we read it and we're like, oh, that's really good. And then we try to recreate it and it's almost like gluten-free cookies. Like, they kind of look like what they're supposed to look like. But we've had the real thing, and they're not the same. And our poetry is just not the same, right? I I thought about and read this week about some teenagers that were trying to express themselves in poems about love. One guy in particular, I read two poems. I'm going to read you two poems. They're quick. Um, This was a guy that, that had been jilted by somebody he loved. This is what he wrote. Look. There's a lonely cow. Hey, cow. If I were a cow, that would be me. If love's the ocean, I'm the Titanic. 
This is, is really good. About to come here. <laughs> Baby, I burned my hand on the frying pan of our love. <laughs> but still, it feels better than the bubble gum that holds us together. Which you stepped on. That's it. That's all you had to say. Now, here's one of a guy. I'm convinced that this said teenager, but I think this is middle school boy. Okay. This is a middle school boy writing to someone he apparently loves. Girl. That's how it starts. <laughs> Makes me think of like a 90s R&B Bobby Brown song. Girl. Girl, you make me brush my teeth. <laughs> Comb my hair. Use deodorant and call you. You're so swell. That's it right there. Now, those are what you call gluten-free cookies, right? In the poem world, those aren't exactly where you want to be. But the point is we try to express ourselves sometimes in poetry. And even though it falls flat, it's the language of emotion. Now, here's the thing. The book of Psalms is written by people who are trying to explain emotion. It's the most emotional book in all the Bible. And we're going to look today at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, anybody know anything? Anybody Bible scholars out there know anything about Psalm 119? Anything in particular, you know? It's the longest psalm in, in the psalm book, but it's also the longest chapter in all of Scripture, right? Over a hundred verses in this one psalm. And here's what it is. Speaking of, of it's like school age poetry, it's an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is, right? Where you write letters down and then you write a word for each letter. They do it in like first, second, third grade, right? You know, um, you write your name and write a, letter, a word for each letter. It's an acrostic. And the acrostic is the Hebrew alphabet. Now, you can't see this in your Bible because your Bible is not Hebrew, right? But each one, if you look in a lot of modern translations, they'll put um, the, the, if you look just in Psalm 119, they'll put like little headings above each section. And so it's olive base. Gimel, Dalab, all the way through, Zion, Ziod, Ayan, If you put all those together, those are the letters. And in the Hebrew Bible, every section, every verse starts with that letter. Okay? And so in the midst of that, it is this amazingly long chapter. We're not going to read it all here because it would take the rest of our time. But here's what I want you to know. It is nothing but a love letter to the one thing that God uses more than anything else to renew and transform your mind to become the masterpiece of art he intends for you to be. Now, we just took a long route to get there. But Psalm 119 is a love poem about the one thing that God uses more than anything else to renew your mind, to transform you into the person, the piece of art, the masterpiece that he intends for you to be. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to jump in kind of in the middle. In Psalm 119, we'll actually pass the middle, verse 129. So if you've got your Bibles open, we've got your... Um, apps open. You can get there. If you don't know where Psalms in, just it's almost right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 119 verses 129 and following says, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. This phrase literally means that those who have no knowledge are suddenly given knowledge when they understand your word. I open my mouth and pant. Because I long for your 
commandments. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Goes on to say this. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your commands, your precepts. And then finally he says this. Make your, sh- your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Here's what I see in this passage. In this passage we see an emotional response to the Word of God. And if we want to become the work of art that God has intended for us to become, the first step for many of us in this room is this. We must desire God's Word. Now, this is not read, although that's part of it. This is not listen to, although that's part of it. There is within this psalm a desire. It almost sounds like he's talking about someone that he loves deeply. He says, I cry when people defame you. I cry when people talk bad about you. I shed tears over it. I pant for you. I long for you. I want God's word. This is not some emotionally detached reading of a book. This is not some dutiful project that we have in order to make sure we check off the I read my Bible every day mark. This is a desire for God's word to dwell deep in our hearts and to change who we are. It is a passion for the word of God. The scripture tells us all throughout that God's word is powerful. It's like a two-edged sword. It divides us. It tells us that it is good for all kinds of stuff. But none of that matters if we don't first have a desire for God's word. We live in a generation that has more access to the word of God than any generation in the history of the world. We live in a country that has more access to the word of God than any country In the history of the world. And yet if you look at all kinds of studies. Biblical literacy. Is that one of the lowest points. In the history of Christianity. We don't know it. We don't want to know it. We don't care to know it. We don't desire it. If we want God to chisel away the stuff. If we want that life of vibrant pursuit of God. If we want to be passionately devoted to following him. We must desire God's word. If you've got your Bibles open, turn back to Psalm 19. Just a hundred chapters before. You see, in Psalm 119, we're going to look at Psalm 19 in just a minute. In Psalm 119, over and over, the, the, the writer talks about delighting in God's word, desiring God's word, depending on God's word. And in Psalm 19, just a couple of verses, we see the reason for that. We see why God's Word is so important. This is Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up here on the screen. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, without blemish, reviving the soul. It's true. I don't know whether you know this or not, but um, we live in a world where truth is not always easily discovered. 
Now, I mentioned that spectrum of um, where you get your news information, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret, all right? All those news organizations slant their coverage and don't give you the full truth in order to make a point that they want you to hear so that you will read their stuff all the time. It's not truth. I was uh, on Facebook this week, and uh, a guy that I know, not in, doesn't live in Goodlesville, doesn't live around here, but one of my friends that's outside of here, posted a picture of um, Hillary Clinton shaking hands with Osama bin Laden. Now, before you get all crazy about that, it's, not, it's a fake. It's not real. And somebody pointed out to him on it. I saw it. I, I mean, there are days that I get on Facebook. I'm like, I could spend my entire day just telling people, no, that's like, no, like you, it doesn't matter if you write on your wall that you don't want anybody to use your stuff. They're going to use your stuff. It's not, it doesn't matter. Okay. No privacy thing you have to post on your wall. All 50, hundred of you that posted it this week. Right. And he, somebody wrote under there, you know this is fake, and then put a, uh, a link to Snopes or Truth or Fiction or one of those sites that debunks that stuff. This is a fake. It's a Photoshop photo. And he wrote under, this is a guy's believer, a believer in Jesus Christ, a guy that, followed, that I've worked alongside of in places, said, oh, I know, but I don't care because I think it represents what she's like. No, it doesn't. It's a lie. It's not truth. We have people just are flippant with the truth. But the thing is, God's word is truth. 100% true. And when you can't figure out what in the world is truth, you know where you can look right here. It's truth. It revives the soul. It brings back us to life when we're in that desperate place. The testimony of the Lord is sure. You can bank on it. You can count on it. It's going to work. It's right. Making wise the simple. There's that phrase again. But here's the thing that throughout scripture it teaches us the world's going to look at us and think we're simple and low minded and that we need to get more intellectual so we wouldn't believe the Bible. And scripture says it doesn't matter if you're simple. The scriptures make you wise. Here's the next part. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. It says that God's command is pure in your life. It will enlighten you to things that are around you. It will show you things that are right. And there's a key word here, and it's the word pure. What does it mean to be pure? What's that word mean? What does it mean to be pure? Innocent? Here it means more without fault. Or completely what it's supposed to be. Like when you eat stuff, you want it to be pure, Right? You don't want anything bad in it. Maybe you do. Are you all just looking at me, right? So, for instance, when you're eating, one of my favorite things used to be, and they don't, they're not even here anymore. Remember when the apple barn was at Opry Mills? And you could go get some of that apple butter. Man, I love that apple butter, right? You go to the real place, you get the fritters and the apple. Man, it's good. Well, here's the thing. There's a, there's a, a, a federal agency out there that their job... <clears throat> their job is to make sure that what you eat is pure, right? And so their standards for purity for apple butter is this, that as long as the mold count is less than 12%, or as long as there are less than four rodent hairs per 100 grams, or less than five whole insects per 100 grams, then it's okay. So if it's a 11% mold count with three rodent hairs, and four whole insects, it's pure apple butter. Amen, right? Anybody feel good about that? 
Well, what if you don't, maybe you don't like apple butter, all right? Maybe you're more of a coffee drinker. Is a coffee drinker, right? Well, here's the thing. You can feel safe tonight because as long as there are not 10% or more of the coffee bean containers that are insect infested, and as long as there aren't live insects in two containers that are side by side, they're okay. They ship them. So it's pure. Anybody here like mushrooms? <laughs> Here's the thing. For mushrooms that you eat, they require that there not be 20 or more maggots per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. All right? And the last one. I mean, you like hot dogs. Yeah, we're not even going to talk about that. All right. I'm just going to move on. Here's the point. All right. Pure. When it comes to scripture means pure. It doesn't mean kind of pure. In fact, that's a word that doesn't even make sense. You can't be kind of pure. You are pure. Here's the next one. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. The reason we desire God's word is because it's true and clean and pure and right and sure. And it opens our eyes and revives our soul. It endures forever and is righteous all Together. Part of the reason that people don't desire or read or love the Word of God like they once did is because we got so many other things competing for our attention. And you got TV shows and movies and Netflix and Hulu and Internet and Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest and conversations with friends and all of those things, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, significantly impacts the way we think and we view the world. And the problem is that many of us are allowing all of that stuff to crowd our desire for the Word. And when we don't have a desire for the Word, it's like we are leaving both doors open in our house at all times, letting anything walk through. I don't know if you've ever had this issue, but my kids have this issue that when they go outside, they don't think you should have to shut the door. Anybody ever had kids that left doors open. And so sometimes I'll hear them outside playing and realize I'm hearing them a little too clearly because the door downstairs is wide open, right? And I went down there one time and I kid you not, there were like two or three animals in my house, (laughs) right? Because the door's open, come on in. These weren't like our animals. We don't have animals. These were just random animals, it's what I call cats because I don't give them the dignity of being called cats. All right. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Amen. And so like, like a cat, there was a dog that came in one time I was down there. We're like, what is going to just leave the door open? Anything can walk in. Can you imagine if, how would you feel if you woke up every morning thinking, I'm glad we left both doors open last night. Not like unlocked. I'm not talking about some country idyllic place where we can leave our doors unlocked all night. I'm talking about like open Man, there are a lot of you here right now that you live your life with your mind's doors wide open. 
and what you're watching and listening to and who you're hanging around and where you're getting your information from. You're just letting it flow right in. And because of that, you don't have any desire for the Word of God. We must desire the Word of God, and this is it, and then we're done. We must live the Word of God. You see, if you just have tons of information and you know all that you need to know, but you're not putting it into practice at all, it is no use to you. None. The Scripture is an active book that throughout Scripture you obey is the way that you show God that you understand and that you love Him and His ways and His precepts and His law is you obey what you know to be true. So you think about throughout Scripture, Abraham is called by God to go and he goes. You think about Moses who splits the Red Sea, who shows all the plagues over Egypt. You think about Joshua who steps into the sea and so that it might, the river and so that it might part. Or David who walks up and Goliath is challenging God's people and David says, why is nobody doing anything? This is God's victory. We stand for him and he goes out and he acts. Or Jonathan who with his armor bearer says, God said the Philistines would be delivered to us. Let's go and perhaps God will do something about it or the prophets that God calls to do things over and over and over again. It never says, oh, I love the word, but I'm not going to do what it says. They do what God calls them to do. We must do what God's word tells us to do. And in case we miss that point, look at what Jesus says and then we're done. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Who hears them and does them. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. There's only one difference between the person that built on the rock and the one that built on the sand, and it's the word not. will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came. Next verse. The floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall. You want to know how God begins to chip away and turn you into that masterpiece that you are? He does it when you desire His Word, and then you live it. This is one of those sermons that, listen, whether or not you're going to take to heart to say here, that, that's up to you. I'm praying that God will, God will put into your life a desire for His Word. I mean, some of you hear that and you're like, what does that even mean? I pray God will put a desire in your heart for His Word and a greater desire to obey it. And I pray that in that process you become, you see the becoming of the masterpiece He intended. Let's pray together.